0: This morning, our passage that we will be considering together is James chapter 5, uh, verses 7 through 12. It's printed for you right there below the song we just sang. If you brought your Bibles, I I certainly invite you to to open them up and turn there with me. So we are down to our last two messages in James. And again, today is uh, James 5, from verse 7 to verse 12. So James 5. Beginning in verse 7, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? Lord, would the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Lord, would you by your spirit attend uh, this word, Um, That we might grasp it, not just with our our minds, but also with our hearts and our wills and our desires. And Lord, in order for there to be um, effective work done, in order for there to be lasting change, Lord, we realize that you need to do that kind of work. And so we pray that you would, uh, as you have promised to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We just read it. Uh, you, you, you heard it. This, this passage is all about patience. And so my question for you is, where in your lives do you struggle most with impatience? I mean, I'm safely assuming uh, that this feels applicable right from the start. We all struggle at some place with impatience. Let me start with the kids. Kids, where do you feel most impatient? Where are you told by your parents that you need to be more patient? Uh, you ever been on a car trip, a road trip, right? What's the question that all of us, when we were kids or now that you are kids, what's the one question that we always have? Are we there yet? Or maybe, how much longer? And it's been 20 minutes, right? We all know that question. Let me give you one vivid memory from my childhood of impatience. Uh, I, I remember as a kid, we had a trip, this would be multiple times, had trips to Disneyland planned. And I remember anticipating the day, just so excited to get back to Disneyland. And so you wake up excited, you get in the car, you park the car, you take the tram, or you walk from, the, from, your, from your car to the, to the gates. They finally take your ticket. You enter into the park and you're greeted. Uh, at least as my memory serves me, it was, it's like this bush that looks like Mickey's head, right? And you're there, and what's the first thing your mom says? Who has to go to the bathroom? And I just remember thinking, there are so many important things to be doing right now. Why are we wasting time at the bathroom? For teenagers, where do you struggle with with impatience? It's probably something like life feels like it's moving so slow. And in reality, it's flying by. But I just remember there being so much urgency because it felt like it was moving so slow. It's like, I need to, I need to speed things along. Uh, right? You're not an adult yet, but you kind of think you are, even though you aren't. And so, so much of teenage life is waiting. It's waiting, that urgency, even though you're waiting. That's really hard. You need to have patience. Parents, we need patience with our children. They are God's wonderful gifts of sanctifying grace. For one very crucial reason, they get in our way. And that's a good thing, that they get in our way. It means that we need patience. We need patience at our workplaces uh, with demanding, unreasonable clients or bosses. We have coworkers who drive us nuts. I'm sure that we drive them nuts. We need patience as we drive north from the, from the border patrol uh, checkpoint to the 15 2 split, right? We need patience in this community. We need patience with our bodies that are breaking down. We have ailments, disabilities, weaknesses, diseases that remind us daily it's as if our own bodies are at war against us. That requires patience. We need patience in our walk with God. We continue to struggle against sins that have haunted us for decades. And so we pray, God, when will I grow from this? When will I move on from this struggle? We pray prayers that seem to go unanswered. So pretty soon our prayer life becomes apathetic and we stop doing it. Now I'm guessing you saw yourself somewhere in that list. At some point you could identify yourself. And and then I hope that we can take a step back and we can see that if we're talking about James, as we've been talking about James for months now, as this book of wisdom in the way of Jesus, it doesn't take much um, intellectual exercise to think through how, of course, patience has so much to do with wisdom, with right living, with right thinking. To live well, to live rightly according to the Word of God, to live wisely in the way of Jesus. I mean, doesn't it just have to mean that we live patiently? To be a people who wait well. And so we're in the home stretch of. The book of James, and he brings us to consider patience. And so we'll look at three things in the, in the verses that we read together this morning. Three points. The, the first, and they're all there in your, in, your, in your bulletin, right? The call for patience, the counterfeits of patience, and then the cultivation of patience. So first off, James identifies our need for patience. Look at verse seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, I want you to notice something right at the beginning. James has changed his tone from the last couple of verses that we've looked at. Now, one was a few weeks ago. That had to do with the merchant who presumed. So James says, come now, you who say, we'll go to such and such a town, we'll conduct some transactions, we'll make a profit. Remember that passage. And then last week, we had this stern warning, right? Come now, you rich. So do you hear the change of tone? Did you hear how many times when I read through this passage, he kept saying, brothers, brothers, my brothers, my brothers, Be patient, therefore, brothers, and and it certainly could be read. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, because this is family language. This is the intimate language of the church. This is what James started with previously in the letter. So last week I mentioned, you know, it's more than likely he's writing to these congregations of Jewish followers of Jesus. Socioeconomically, the majority of them are at the bottom of the, of the ladder. They're on a lower rung of, of that socioeconomic ladder. And so life wasn't easy. And so what does life look like for those in the churches that James is writing to? Well, the call for patience finds its meaning in situations where there are temptations to impatience. The stresses of life. And life is hard. And so what is patience? What is the patience that James is calling the church to? And he uses a few words to describe this general idea. He gives us kind of this uh, full-orbed, three-dimensional picture of, of the patience that is required. And so the first word, this is used three times in our passage, and we would just translate it as be patient. And it's the Greek word that combines two other words. It combines long and passion. So the, the idea there is, is long to be passionate, um, long to become angry. It's a passive virtue, it waits. You, you see why he uses the farming analogy and illustration. You have the farmer who works really hard, but really a lot of what farming was, especially back then and should be now, is that farming is waiting. You're waiting for the rain, you're waiting for the harvest to come. This is the kind of of passive virtue. This is the kind of patience needed when a doctor tells you you just need time to heal. Your injury just needs time. My son David, when he was two years old, he had a really nasty arm break and to this day, his arm is still pretty, pretty crooked. And, and the orthopedic surgeon is looking at it, and he's saying, you know, there's no growth plate involved. It just needs time. As he gets older, as his, as his arm gets longer, that crooked bone will straighten out. So we have to be patient for a straight arm. There's nothing we can do but wait. Even when that's frustrating, you have to wait. The next word James uses is translated, strengthen or establish your hearts. And so you can already hear there, it's more active, right? It's not a passive virtue, but this is active. This is steely resolve. This is staying ready for battle. This is when I'm wrestling with my kids, right? And they want to tackle me, and they want to bring me to the ground. What do I do? I'm paying attention to my balance. I'm refusing to be brought down. I have that active kind of resolve. And so when life comes at you fast, so to speak, you need to establish your heart. You need to stay steady on your feet. Then James calls us in verse 11 to follow the the model of Job and be steadfast. We'll come back to Job in a few minutes, but here's one more word that fills out what it means to be a waiting and patient people. We have to be steadfast. This is perseverance. If you go back to the the very first line in this letter, uh, count it all... All joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces the same word, steadfastness or perseverance. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a bookend. James began the letter with this call to perseverance, and how is he coming to the end of his letter? It's the same call to perseverance. Steadfastness is the determination to stay on the right course. Right? Picture a ship sailing into port, and you have strong crosswinds. So what's the captain doing? He's got to persevere straight into the port, into his destination. That's the call. That's the exhortation. These are important pieces of the wise life in Christ. We are to be those who are patient, who are steadfast, who persevere, who have our hearts established, now, why is patience so central to wisdom? I think there are a lot of good answers that we could consider on, on why patience is so central to wisdom. Let me offer just one important reason. I think this is James's point. Patience is how God grows us. Patience is how God grows us. By the way, this is common sense because this is how we grow. Resistance, right? persevering through resistance is how we grow Uh, this is true of life in general if you want giant biceps what do you do now you can swing your arms by your side for 10 hours a day and at points you may even get some good cardio but you will not develop giant biceps what do you need to do for giant biceps you've got to lift weights you have to give yourself resistance if you want to learn, right? you don't go into a classroom and, and, and be told everything you already know. That doesn't make you learn. You need, to, you need resistance. You need challenge and struggle. That's how you grow intellectually, with knowledge. A strong marriage uh, isn't one that, that doesn't have any resistance. right? That usually means you don't talk to each other, so your marriage is, is not quite working at all. No, a good, strong marriage needs resistance. Love and commitment grow through facing resistance together. And so resistance in life should not surprise us. It's how we grow. And so how do we grow in exercising patience in the face of resistance and trials? And look at verse eight. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Coming of the Lord is at hand. That's the key, right? Remember James' audience. Many would be suffering injustice. Many would be beaten down by the world. Many would know the depths of grief and loss. Many would suffer under the sins of others. Absolutely all of them would be sufferers under their own sins. And so where do they find patience? Place your injustice, place your grief, place your loss, your suffering, and your sin in. In the hope of Jesus who is coming to make all things new. The Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts, right? Plant your feet in the hope of Christ and his coming kingdom. Because that is the only ground that is firm and stable enough to uphold you. And so the problem that we come up against when we take a step back is that we establish our hearts in all of the wrong places, right? That's what we do as sinful men and women and children. We establish our hearts in the wrong places because we know what it is to be beaten down by the world, right? Most of us know what it's like to be beaten by the world. We know what it's like to experience deep grief, deep loss. We all, Again, we know what it is to suffer under the sins of others and under our own sins. And so what do we do? We establish our hearts in the wrong places. We, we establish our hearts in coping mechanisms. I think coping mechanisms more than anything else, and maybe that's kind of a modern uh, terminology that I'm using, but that's what keeps us from growth in patience. And so we face resistance, and what do we do? We establish our hearts in retail therapy, or food, or amusement. We just want to escape. We cope with drinking. Think about that example of drinking, right? The goal in, in, is to slacken the resistance, Right? to slacken the resistance instead of growing in Christ. And, and what happens then is we can hurt our relationships. We can no, ignore our duties and our responsibilities. We can develop dependencies. And so what we're doing is we're compounding our trials. Instead of slackening the resistance, in the end, we're making it worse. How about life and work being trying and, and difficult? Let's say life is just really tough. Your, your work life is, is overwhelming, and yet you have a vacation coming up. And so you, you place your patience and your endurance in this vacation that's on the horizon. So what happens when you're on vacation and your children still act nuts? You're going to lose it because your patience was contingent on circumstances. And if our patience is contingent on circumstances, that is a shaky and vulnerable foundation and it will crumble. And so no, patience is our entrusting ourselves to God. It's waiting on the Lord and the kingdom that he is bringing and and already, right now, is working in the midst of his people. Patience is already and not yet. Already, God is at work. He's growing us through this endurance, right? But we await a new world where the resistance gives way to resolve. All right, so part and parcel of wisdom for James, we have this call for patience and perseverance. Secondly, This is where James goes. We can see in our passage the counterfeits of patience are also problematic. They're real. They they maybe disguise themselves as growth and patience, but really they're just counterfeits. We shortchange God's work of growth in our lives. And how do we do that? What are these counterfeits I'm talking about? The two I can see in our passage are grumbling and swearing oaths. All right, so verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, The judge is standing at the door. Pretty clear, right? Don't grumble. Why does James bring up grumbling at this point? That should also be pretty easy to understand because what do you do when you suffer? You grumble. So, why is grumbling problematic? And I think there are a few reasons that we can unpack on why grumbling is problematic. First of all, it's just generally you complain. You announce to others that life is not going well, and I want to be sympathetic here, or I want to be sensitive here, because I think this can be a little bit more complicated, because on the one hand, genuine friendship and companionship involves the bearing of burdens, doesn't it? So we share our burdens so others can bear them with us, others can can pray for us in our burdens, and that's all very good. But of course, there's also a way that I think most of us know that embitters us, it erodes our trust in the goodness of God, and it snuffs out thankfulness to God. I think the illustration would be someone who's like, let me, let me tell you about how miserable it is to live with my wife, and by the way, she's a great wife. You would say, you don't believe she's great at all. That's what complaining does. No, God is good. God is great. Now, let me tell you all the ways my life is miserable. I don't believe you actually think God is good, if that's the way you, 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 you reflect on your own life. I'm more and more convinced that maturity in Christ, the most contagious and vivid examples of holiness and godliness, are believers who exude gratitude and joy. Because when you're with those people, and often you can look at someone's life and say, you have so much to grumble about, but you don't. And it's like you know that person is touched by the life of Jesus. You know Jesus is in that person's life. It makes you want to love Jesus more and serve Jesus more. They have every reason in the world to grumble, but all they do is sing of Jesus. What? That doesn't make any sense, but I want that in my life. Another idea, of the problematic idea of grumbling here, is, is that believers shouldn't blame others for their difficulties, right? So if the first problem with grumbling is just complaining, another problem is this idea of blame-shifting, This is the most primal form of self-righteousness going back to the Garden of Eden, right? Everyone else is the problem. Here is my life of suffering. Sit down. Let me tell you all of the people responsible. Let me tell you all of the circumstances that are responsible for my life being the way it is. And if it's everyone else's fault or if it's, it's the fault of circumstances, what happens when you keep pulling that thread? Eventually, you always just end up blaming God. God's at fault because his purposes are at fault. The third and final problem with grumbling is that it puffs you up. Grumbling is inherently prideful, and so you can say things like, no one can understand what I'm going through. Suffering can become a competition. You think your situation is bad, let me tell you my story. I know you think your life is hard, let me tell you what what my hard life looks like. And so you end up Grumbling to yourself, right? You start to win that suffering competition. And then you start to also make exceptions for yourself. I think, ironically, a lot of grumblers think they're patient because they're putting up with everybody else in their mind. So what happens? Well, grumbling keeps us from entrusting ourselves to God's purposes. Grumbling can function as a counterfeit to patience. And, and then, and really quick, here's a second counterfeit that, that James uh, points out, which is swearing. So in verse 12, above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So James here almost verbatim quotes his, his brother Jesus uh, on oaths from the Gospel of Matthew. And so why does Jesus riff on Jesus here? Uh, what, what does this have to do with patience? Well, I think to take a vow is an extreme example of impatience. Swearing is the attempt to strike a deal, isn't it? And how much pride must one have to think you can negotiate with God? God, if you take away this trial, if you take away this pain, if you take away whatever it is, then I will... You'll do what? What will you do? And so the danger of, of the grumbling person, the danger of the swearing person, is fundamentally the same problem, and it's a failure to grasp the gospel. For the person that swears, he or she is trying to make a deal with God. If you do this, I'll do this. It's just a false hope in your own power. Again, what do you think that you can do? What word do you think you can keep before God? No, patience grounded in the gospel is so different because it's patience grounded, not in your own swearing, right? It's patience grounding in God swearing to you by a better unbreakable word. Patience is trusting in the oath of God, his promise sealed to you in the blood of Jesus. And so in the darkness, right, instead of saying, God, get me out of this, then I will read my Bible every day, then I will serve the poor once a month, instead the gospel offers a better way, it's a truer way, God, how are you using this darkness to grow me? And every struggle with impatience that manifests itself in doubt and unbelief and despair, it must be confronted with the better promise of Christ. That's why we come here to proclaim what? Christ crucified to be continually confronted with that better promise of Christ for you. For the person who grumbles, right? Because my life is difficult, I am justified in being hard. Because my life is difficult, I'm justified in being hard toward others. God has not given me the life I deserve, therefore I can act in this way. Isn't grumbling always kind of this uglier side of I deserve better? Look what I have done, and yet look what I have been given. And I think God to his children in the most compassionate fatherly way comes alongside of us. I think we've all been there, even if we haven't expressed it in that way. And he says in the gospel, I have given still more for you. I have sacrificed more than you will ever imagine. And so trust me. Persevere in me. The fight against grumbling is found in gratitude to the God who gave his son. As the Apostle Paul puts it, he who did not withhold his own son, will he not give us all things? So James has shown us this call to be patient, part and parcel of wisdom. We've seen these counterfeits to patience. And then finally, we'll wrap up with looking at the cultivation of patience. How do we cultivate patience in this world of disappointment and frustration, suffering and grief? And James gives us some clues. First, we have to see God acting in our lives. We have to see God acting in our lives. We have to believe and know that he is at work in our lives. And so look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And so we just have to come to to an understanding that God is at work in our lives and in this world as the one who is sovereign. God is king over everything, including our lives and, and, and our hearts. And I know that we're a Presbyterian church, and so that's kind of par for the course, is that we affirm, yeah, of course, God is sovereign. But we actually have to believe it. And live as if that were true. And so here are these examples that, that James just quickly mentions. One is the Old Testament prophets. And you could think of a number of them. You can think of Elijah or Elisha, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos. All of them, uh, they see people ignore their prophecies. Most of the time, the leaders of Israel were hostile toward them and wanted them dead. And yet they bore that hostility with patience. They endured So often the prophets had no idea what God was doing and they often asked God, what in the world am I doing? What are you doing? Why am I saying these things to this people and yet they endured? They entrusted themselves to God's purposes for them. And then James uses the example of Job. Now if you know the book of Job, you are right to maybe question if this is the best example or not. I mean, when we think about Job, do we really think of someone that we should model in terms of his steadfastness? And I think maybe our our gut reaction is no, and yet James says yes. How does that work out? Because James certainly uses Job as an example. If you remember the story of Job, Job begins with Satan under the purpose of the Lord. He takes everything away from Job. Job loses his children, he loses his wealth, and do you remember how Job responds at that point? The Lord is given, the Lord is taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It's kind of like beautiful, faithful resignation in light of God's sovereignty at that point, right? But the story's not over. Then Job is afflicted with boils. And now all of a sudden, he's like, just end it now. <laughs> at this point, now he's bringing his case before God and saying, okay, at this point, I need to know, what are you doing? Are you seeing what's going on in my life? And God shows Job that Job can't fully grasp his ways. And here's what's interesting. When the book ends, after all of this complaining that Job has done, God comes. You know what he says about Job? He has spoken rightly about me. Remember, throughout this book, Job has these foolish friends who are offering foolish counsel. And God says to those friends, you need my man Job to intercede for you. So what's the story of Job about? Job affirms God's sovereignty, therefore he brings his case before God. God responds to Job. Job rightfully withdraws his case, but in the end, God affirms and defends Job. This is our example. God wants you to share your heart, to entrust yourself to God's sovereign purpose over your life, but also never to be silent before God's sovereignty. Otherwise, that's probably a clue that you don't actually believe it. Because Job is our example who goes to God for the very reason that God is sovereign. His complaining, his cries, they were acts of belief in God. And so likewise, you and I are to cry out to God because he's sovereign. We have to bring to him our fears and our tears and our doubts. And yet God's sovereignty can't be the only thing we turn to in our confusion and grief. You have to see with Job and the prophets how the Lord is also compassionate and merciful. And friends, God's compassion and mercy have everything to do with our patience because they have everything to do with his patience. Every day where Jesus delays his coming, that's the hope, isn't it? That's where where James goes. Be patient. Well, how can I be patient and endure? Because the Lord is at hand. So every day where Jesus delays his coming, that is a reminder. Every morning we wake up, I think we should be reminded of the patient heart of God. Right? Right? Even the first generation of believers struggled with this patience. Where is the day of the Lord? I thought the Lord was at hand. Why hasn't Jesus come back and established his kingdom in full? Why are we still waiting? What more does God want to see? What more suffering does God want to see? That's the first generation of Christians. And here we are 2,000 years later. Peter speaks to this in 2 Peter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The amazing thing about that passage isn't just that one day is a thousand and a thousand is one. The amazing thing is this call to remember God's patience toward us is his expression of mercy. God is bringing a new world. Why is there such a delay? It's for our sake. His delay has a purpose. His work isn't done. His mercy in saving the lost is still a buzz. We are all beneficiaries of God's patience. If you are a Christian, it is because of the patience of God. Full stop. And so before you need to be patient with those around you, before you can be patient in your circumstance, before you can be patient in your trials, you need to come to grips with, you need to see and behold God's compassionate, merciful, and glorious patience with you. That you have a Father willing to wait on you willing to nurture your heart. We are called to be patient because we have been saved by the supremely patient one. We're called to be patient because we've been saved by Jesus. Jesus who ministered to thick-headed disciples Jesus who was misunderstood and mischaracterized by nearly everyone he met. We've been saved by Jesus who could have and would have been justified in sending heaven's armies to defeat his enemies. We have been saved by Jesus who hung on the cross and we can only imagine how excruciatingly slow time passed on that cross. And he endured for your salvation, for mine. We are called to be patient because we are supremely blessed in Jesus. Knowing that our inheritance is kept by Christ and that we will receive his kingdom that has no end. That we have the promise of Jesus is coming again, which means we know how the story ends. And that's where the endurance comes from. That God will make all things new and that is what gives us the power to endure, to hold on and to be steadfast. Let us pray. Father, my prayer is that your spirit would be so at work this morning, bringing us to see the patient heart of God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit the father who, who planned before time was in existence, the father who gave his son, the son who endured, uh, the spirit who is the, the power, the one who brings all of this to be and who in the lives of impatient rebel, son, uh, rebel men and women uh, is forming us into the image of Jesus, is forming us into patient sons and daughters. Lord, we know uh, very very tangibly with with so many examples of of how our lives are characterized by uh, a a despisal of waiting. That our lives are characterized by impatience. And so my prayer is that you would settle our hearts, that we would be grounded in you, Lord, the patient one. The one who delays uh, wanting to see your plan carried out, wishing that no one would perish. Lord, ground us in that truth. Ground us in that gospel reality. Even in the mundane vocations and tasks and callings that you have have, have placed us in, would we be driven um, from the heart of God? Lord, would you do that work in our midst? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.